Well, I'm Jeff, if we haven't had a chance to meet, and would love to get to uh, hear a little bit of your story before you take off, if you're willing. Uh, we're in week two of a new series going through the book of Deuteronomy, and I thought I would start, uh, it's more fun for you guys than first service, because I'm going to start with a story about Jay and end with a story about Kami, my son and my wife. And I always ask, usually permission, I try to ask before I share other people's stories, and so I have consistently through the years shared a lot of stories about Jay, and I always ask him, and he's been very willing. He's never said no, even in some stories that I was like, you really don't care if I share this? He's like, no, you can share it, Dad, if it helps people. But he's getting sassier now that he's a teenager. So I said, Jay, hey, I want to, it's not, this isn't even like a real personal story. I was like, hey, I want to share this story this Sunday. Do you care? He's like, I'll make you a deal, Dad. And I was like, what, Jay? He's like, well, if you refer to me as Jay the Wise and Wonderful, you can share which I think he thought I wouldn't do, but I was like, dude, I love you. I'm your dad. Of course. You are Jay the Wise and Wonderful. So for today, you need to refer to Jay. Only today. I don't want him to get a big head. But today, you can refer to him as Jay the Wise and Wonderful. We've been watching a show this past week. My niece, Jay's cousin, said, oh, you guys should watch this. It's a good show. You should watch it. It's a it kind of falls in the genre of like mystery, scary, funny. I don't want to, I mean, I, different generations now, but to me it's like Scooby-Doo genre, right? Like there's like monsters out there, but you don't know who is the monster and you're trying, the whole show is trying to figure out what's going on, but it's kind of funny. And the, the main people are kids and this, the lead is a, is a little girl. And she's kind of, I mean, she's not just kind of, she is morbid. She's morbid. <laughs> Everybody around her is wearing colors all the time. She will only wear black and white. No colors on her. She's morbid. And so she has this fascination with death that's kind of a part of her character in the storyline. And we're in a scene where they're in this deserted house trying to figure out clues about this monster and where it's coming from and what's going on. And, and it's, it's an intense scene. Like they do, you know, the, the show writers do a good job, and you're, like, scared a little bit. I mean, it's not crazy scary, but a little bit. Are, are, is the monster going to show up, and what's going to happen? And the lead character is there with two of her friends, and her friends are terrified. I think Jay was a little scared, too. I won't put him on the spot. But, but the main character is not afraid. And Jay just blurts out, she's not afraid of death, so she's not afraid of anything. And this is what happens when your dad is a pastor. I'm like, Jay, that was so theological. I love it. I mean, we're in the middle of the show, a scary moment. I'm like, Jay, that's what all. And he's like, Dad, stop. You know, stop preaching. But that's what all the New Testament like authors are trying to get us to understand in Christ. If he's really conquered. I mean, there's a mini sermon. In the, in the, this is the intro of the sermon, guys. But in Christ, if he's conquered death, and we, have, we don't have to fear death anymore, then what do we have to be afraid of? That's, I mean, that's a big part. And so, but Jay comes to this conclusion, not because I told, if I told him, he would have forgot it, but it's born out of a story. And so it resonates with him and he yells it out. And that's exactly what's going on as we kind of like dive into Deuteronomy here. I kind of did an introduction last week um, on a holiday. So some of you might've missed it, but you can always join the podcast or, or watch last week's, but we only covered the first five verses, I did a little bit, but we're going we're gonna to kind of cruise through the first four chapters, so I'm just going to highlight some verses that, uh, that I want to highlight, I guess, because there's a lot in there. And then next week, I think we'll do chapter five, the Ten Commandments. I was like, I've been a pastor 15 years, 
little more. I don't think I've ever done a sermon on the Ten Commandments. I did one commandment once on a part of a series. But, uh, so next week's Ten Commandments, and then we'll do Deuteronomy chapter 6, which is kind of the heartbeat of the whole book. Uh, and then we'll probably jump into the next section, and we'll look at some of this mosaic law. That's just kind of where we're going. But we're in Deuteronomy chapters 1 to 4, and I'm going to give you a highlight. You can read it, maybe even spark your interest. I, I want you to get interested about Moses. I'm interested about Moses. And I want you to get interested about this book that we, honestly, most of us know very little about. I was talking about a little bit about this last week, but much of the first five books of the Bible, these Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, they're covering large spans of time, especially Genesis. Deuteronomy is like four hours, <laughs> It's just this moment in Israel's history where Moses is giving sermons. And so it's just this, and it's repetitive. We'll talk a little bit about the repetitive nature. We we read things that we've already read in the Bible. Why is Moses saying it again? And we'll talk about that as we go. But I want you to get excited about Deuteronomy. Maybe on your own, you'll read through chapters 1 to 4 this week. And Moses is doing what these TV writers kind of did for Jay. He's telling a story, but even more pronounced. He's, he's telling the story of Israel, the story that they even know, but he's telling it with a purpose. He wants, I mean, what, what we could do is just skip the first four chapters and have Moses say, God is incredible, and you are sinful, stubborn, and difficult. <laughs> That's what Moses is saying to the people, but instead of just saying that in a way that it would just go in one ear and out the other, He's telling them the story. He's telling us the story so we see that God is incredible and faithful and that all the problems are because these people are so stubborn and sinful and difficult. And so really, I mean, part of what's happening is he's preparing the next generation, which we'll talk about more in two weeks at Deuteronomy 6, preparing our job and preparing the next generation. We'll talk about that. Moses is preparing the next generation. The current generation does not get to enter the promised land, including Moses. And so he's preparing the next generation. So we'll pick up in verse 6, chapter 1, Deuteronomy, verse 6. When we were at Mount Sinai, so again, if you're not familiar with the biblical story, you, you probably know the story of Moses leading the Israelite slaves out of Egypt. You know, Pharaoh, the Red Sea parting, that story. They end up at Mount Sinai. Depending on the translation you have, it might say Mount Horeb. It's the same place. When we were at Mount Sinai, the Lord our God said to us, you have stayed at this mountain long enough. It is time to break camp and move on. Go to the hill country of the Amorites and to all the neighboring regions, the Jordan Valley, the hill country, the western foothills, the Negev and the coastal plain. Go to the land of the Canaanites and the Lebanon and all the way to the great Euphrates River. Look, I am giving all this land to you. Go in and occupy it. For it is the land the Lord swore to give to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to all their descendants. So again, we are in line with this story that's been unfolding from the beginning pages of Scripture. So what I'm going to do now is just kind of give you a high-level summary of the next few chapters. You can follow along if you kind of want, or you can, again, just plan on reading it later. But as I said, you're going to start to get some ideas of Moses. He begins verse 9 by he kind of, what happens is the, the people that Moses is leading, they get too big. And so he's reminding them of how he had to appoint other leaders to help him with the judgments that were being made and so forth. But you kind of get this picture of Moses as like kind of annoyed that the people got so big and became such a burden. But he's also celebrating that God has honored his promise to multiply the people. So, so you kind of get these tensions with Moses. We're going to get to know him as we go along. 
Then he moves on into verse 19, chapter 1. He, he reminds them of when they were on the verge of the promised land, and they sent scouts out to, to check out this land that they were headed to. And the scouts thought the land was amazing, but they were afraid of the people who lived in the land. In fact, and we're going to talk a little, I got four points that we're just going to draw out. And the second point, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the people that get highlighted, it's kind of interesting and important, might stretch you a little bit, but, but there are giants that live in the land. In fact, you read through these chapters that the author of Deuteronomy goes out of his way to make sure you are aware of these giants. The giants were a big deal to the, these spies. The people were afraid and they didn't want to go in the land. And of course, God is frustrated because one of the major themes of Deuteronomy is obedience so God is angry, and the people, the people feel bad, and so they confess their sins, and they're like, well, go in now. And Moses is like, don't, because God's not going now. But they go anyway, this disobedient, stubborn, difficult people, and they get defeated, and then 40 years, right? This is 40 years of wandering. Chapter 2 is going to be a lot of guidance for how to navigate these territories. You're going to see there's there's various territories, and we're going to we'll hone in on these last couple because they're unique in a variety of ways. But, but he's going to kind of give him direction for how to navigate the territories of the Edomites and the Moabites and the Ammonites, um, which you may be super excited about or maybe not. I don't know. But that's part of the story that gets told. And then you have this defeat over Sihon of Heshbon and another defeat over Og of Bashan. So uh, and again, we'll come back to these last two victories because there's a few things I want to say about that. But the first one, I, I, just this high-level view, uh, I, I guarantee you this is an oral culture. They don't stream TV shows on their cell phone while they're going through the wilderness. They're telling stories. So the stories that Moses is telling them, you know they're like, I can just picture a son being like, Dad, I've heard this a million times. I mean, even if you're a Bible studier, you've read this stuff. You're like, wait, I just read this in Genesis. Wait, this was in Numbers. Why, why, why do I have to read this again? Just, I mean, we're good Americans. Just get me to the next thing. I already know this, right? But the point is Moses is slowing you down. He's trying to make some points. He's trying to, and again, this is countercultural for us. Pay attention. Yes, you know this. It's not about you learning something new. No, this is about you Maybe taking this that you, and re-looking at it. Moses, in fact, we'll talk about this as we go through Deuteronomy. Moses is going to say things differently in Deuteronomy than he did in Exodus at points. And there's a reason why. So pay attention, pay attention, pay attention. I've been listening to and reading a lot of different voices because I'm, I'm not the most familiar with Deuteronomy. I, I shared last week, my seminary professors kind of just skipped over it. Because at that point, you're way behind and you're going through the Old Testament. So I'm learning a lot. And I have been really enjoying the Bible Project. They did a whole podcast all year last year through the Pentateuch. And so I listened to the Deuteronomy ones when it relates to the passage I'm preaching. But I've been in the Exodus ones on my own. And I've just noticed again and again and again, they, they talk about the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, as meditational literature, <laughs> When that phrase, because they say it so much, is just sinking in, what they mean is the way the Old Testament is written is, is designed. And again, sometimes this is counterintuitive for how you and I read this one. I was talking to somebody else about this. We tend to think about learning as linear, and it's often very cyclical. And that's how the Hebrew authors thought. It was cyclical, and so they would write something that would make you think of the Garden of Eden, and so you go back and you read it. 
And you're like constantly cross-referencing and you're revisiting things you've already read and you're, you're I got to read this again. Oh, Moses talked about that in Numbers. I want to read that again and then I want to read Deuteronomy again and I'm just going to, I'm just going to sit with the same story because there's things I want to learn. Uh, one of my friends sent me, just sent me an article that, that deals with what's going on, I think, in our culture, in our technological culture. <laughs> And I just, there were a few paragraphs as I was thinking about Moses slowing down the people of Israel and asking them to pay attention to stuff they already know. I found this article pretty interesting. See if you can relate to this at all. The author said, in the world we live in today, we are dealing with forces which deplete rather than renew us. The arc of digital culture bends toward exhaustion. That's why when you go on vacation, you need another vacation, Right? You just celebrated Christmas and New Year's, and now you're like, when do I get another holiday? I need a break, right? The, 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 there's a lot of reasons why, but the world we live in, it, it tends towards exhaustion. And we are a depleted people in many ways. The author goes on to say, what I mean by this is simple. When we think of the way our days are structured, the kinds of activities most readily on offer, the, the mode of relating to the world we are encouraged to adopt, in each case, we are more likely to find ourselves spent rather than sustained. The default set of experiences on offer to us are more likely to leave us feeling drained and depleted rather than satisfied and renewed. And he closes the paragraph by saying, in our consumption, we are consumed. Which is kind of big picture, but it's something to pause. I mean, we're in such a hurry and we just, again, this is one of the things we talk about in our discipleship pathway formed. You will never drift into the Jesus life. You have to be intentional. You have to kind of swim upstream towards Jesus because the culture is pushing you towards technology, towards hurry, 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 consume, consume, consume. And you got to be able to step back and say, wait, I'm being consumed as I consume. And I'm exhausted and I'm depleted and I'm never renewed or satisfied or at rest. So you got to be able to pay attention. What happens? I mean, that's what Moses is inviting them to do. What happens when we pay attention? I'm going to use an example. The author kind of used an example, but I'm going to make it a little bit more personal. Have you ever met identical twins? When I was in sixth grade, we wrapped up elementary school, and we all, the elementary schools, headed together for junior high in seventh grade. And right there in the beginning of the year, in the fall, I joined the cross-country team, and I met Chad and Austin Harris. Chad and Austin Harris were identical twins. Exact same height, exact same build, same face, same hair, red hair, same laugh. I mean, they were the same. And I could not tell them apart. I was scared to say their names. I didn't know which was which. And I got annoyed at people who went to elementary school with them because they knew who was who. Which was Chad, which was Austin. Well, have you ever been around identical twins? You have that experience, and then what happens a year later? A year later, I'm in eighth grade, seventh graders are joining the team, they can't tell who's Chad and Austin, and I'm like, you can't tell them apart? It's so obvious, they look nothing alike. You know what I'm talking about? It happens. And I'll, I'll use the words of the author, because he says it well, but, but, but what happened? Neither my vision nor their appearance changed in any meaningful way during this time period. Yet my ability to perceive my friends changed dramatically. Attending to them over a sufficient amount of time, persevering in my efforts to know them by name, eventually disclosed the distinctness of their individuality to me. 
The striking thing is that a layer of reality that was always present to my senses only became accessible to me over time through the persistent application of attention. In other words, Chad and Austin always looked the way they did, but until I spent time paying attention because I wanted to know them, I couldn't, I couldn't differentiate between the two of them. But once I had put that time in, it was really easy to differentiate between the two. You understand what I'm saying? And I think there's a big part of what Moses is doing in these first four chapters. He's, he's reminding the people, but he, he's called, pay attention. And remind yourself, pay attention to who God is. This is your God, people. And pay attention to you. And next generation, pay attention to the previous generation. And don't do what they did. Pay attention. Don't miss this. It's too important. Just because you know the details doesn't mean you understand the story. So slow down. And even if it's boring to revisit a story you've heard, it doesn't hurt to keep, because the more you sit with this meditation literature, the more you sit with the Word of God, the more you're going to see, the more you're going to know, the more you're going to understand. It's really important. All right, the second point is going to be a little bit, um, a little thicker, I guess, but it, it's one that I didn't, I, I, I thought about not talking about this, but then I decided I'm going to talk about it. So, if you take the time, which we could, but I just don't have the time this morning, but if you take the time, you can read through the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, and then you can jump into chapter 7 as well. And what you're going to get, this, is, this, is, this becomes a challenging part for some people. I don't think we need to be afraid of challenges. It's good to wrestle with them with God, but I just want to call it out because it's a challenging part. God is going to command the Israelites as they go to take over this land to kill every man, woman, and child. And that can be hard. It can be hard to read, uh, hard to understand as a Christian. It's complex. It, it takes a long time really to talk through all that is going on. And I didn't want to devote the whole sermon to it. So, uh, and I'm not even necessarily going to try to fully solve it or satisfy it. I just, I wanted to bring it out because it's okay. We can, we can have hard conversations. Healthy families have hard conversations. I don't know if any of you experienced that over the holidays. You were with family members, and there's this elephant in the room that nobody's talking about. And you're like, how could, I mean, we're laughing, we're playing games, but why is nobody talking about this hard issue? Why? Healthy families talk about hard things. So it's a hard issue. And so I want to spend just a few minutes talking about it. And what I will say is if this creates a lot of questions for you, I'm, really, I'm, happy. I'm happy to meet and talk about this or any difficult Bible question you might have. It's probably not the first time I heard it. <laughs> and I've probably asked the same question at some point. I mean, it's, it's just what happens when you read the Bible. So if you want to come in and chat with me, I'd love to find time to do that. If you want to do a deeper dive, if you go and look on my desk, there are like 12 books right now because I'm learning Deuteronomy. And a lot of the authors that I read, I mean, they just, they, it's in there, and so they all address it. I have an Old Testament ethics book. I mean, it's just people talk about what is going on, how, how can this be? Um, so, but, but what I would recommend to you is a 70-minute podcast from the Bible Project. If you want to email me, I'll send you the link, or you can just go to their webpage, go to their podcast, go to the Deuteronomy scroll, and it's episode three, Giants and Justice. But I read a lot of people this week. And I just think the Bible Project podcast was the most helpful for me. 70 minutes, so I can't squeeze 70 minutes into a 40-minute sermon. So you're going to have to do your own homework. But let me just say a few things that were helpful for me. Because what I love about the Bible Project guys is they, 
They wrestle with the complexity of the issue. They're, they're sincere about it. But they allow the biblical authors to deal with this in their own words on their own terms, which I think is really important. And they bring up a lot of helpful things to help navigate this. But let me just, I'll just maybe too quickly try to give you a little taste of some of what I think they're doing. And then we'll move on to the next point. But they go back to Genesis because these are major themes. This idea of the giants in the land and this idea of, I mean, again, it's, it's like the story of Noah. I mean, in, in, in very real ways, in the same way that Genesis 3 to 11 tells the story of the growing uh, depravity of humanity. And in, in Genesis, it's really the violence of humanity. And that really is what brings about the flood in Noah's Ark and that whole story. Uh, you'll see this idea of God kind of cleansing and, and rebeginning a few times. There's this theme that happens. It's like this flood theme that happens. As the Israelites are going into the promised land, there's going to be a flood that wipes out the wickedness and the, 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 the evil. Um, but it's just, it's hard because the flood is people, right? The Israelites are the flood who are going to bring about this kind of new beginning. So in Genesis 3 through 11, we see a portrait of what happens when a human culture gives itself over to death and to the practices that lead to death, and then calls those things good. Again, all these themes, the, the Garden of Eden, the serpent, uh, the, the Satan tempting Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve saying, no, we'll decide for ourselves what is good. We don't want to listen to you anymore, God. And this is the theme that's just getting drawn out, drawn out throughout the biblical story. And so the people groups in, in Deuteronomy who inhabit the promised land are portrayed as these kinds of people. The people in the, the Canaanites, not the Edomites, the Moabites. It's not everybody. It's just, it's just the Canaanites and, and Og and, and Sihon. The, 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 this, is the, this is the only areas. But there are people that have gone too far. They're too far gone. They're, they're just like what, what the biblical author is saying is this is just like the generation of the flood. And they're living in the land that Yahweh's marked out to be a hub of Eden life for the rest of the nations. And I alluded to this earlier, but I'll try to bring this together a little bit more. Um, there's a deep connection. I said, as you read through this, why is there so much attention to these giants, these sons of Anak? Well, if you're following through the biblical story, the sons of Anak, the Anakim, these giants, go back to Genesis chapter 6. <laughs> and anybody who's read Genesis 6, you always get there and you're like, the Nephilim, who are the Nephilim? What is this? In Genesis 6, you have this, uh, the way it gets portrayed, and there's reasons why this, because there's a lot, there's a lot of things going on that I don't have time to talk about, but, but you have these, they're, they're called the sons of God, or the sons of Elohim in Hebrew, and the daughters of man, and you get this illicit joining, this unsanctioned union, and out of this union you get the Nephilim. They're, this, they're pictured in the Bible as this, 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 it's chaos, it's not God's design, and so um, they're this like hybrid of spiritual human. They're mighty warriors, mighty kings, but they're giants. They're, and they're, present, they're, they're depicted as evil, as chaotic. They're bringing about chaos. And so as part of what these, what, what's happening in Deuteronomy is the way that, there's just so much evil. That's what they're saying. The giants are there. It's just evil. It's corrupt. It's as bad as it can be. And again, I think it can be hard, but, that's, but, that's, but that, that's what's being said. 
Deuteronomy is saying, Moses is saying to, to Israel, you're going to face a whole new culture and a whole new generation of snakes, if you will. And you need to do to these snakes, you know, these Nephilim, these giants, these people, what Adam and Eve failed to do. They were taken under, swayed by the snake. They failed to run the snake out, and you need to do it. And again, if we keep going, the story remains difficult because the people, the Israelites, who are called to stomp out the snakes in Canaan will themselves become snakes in a few centuries and be stomped out of the land by a bigger snake, Babylon. (laughs) I mean, that's the biblical story. It's an indictment of humanity. The whole story is an indictment on all human communities. So more than anything, again, there's, I'm, not, I'm not answering every question, but I'm just telling you in the arc of the biblical narrative, the biblical stories of conquest are an indictment of humans who have allowed themselves to become infected with the power of the snake. Uh, and actually in one of these mighty warriors, uh, maybe the first one actually mentioned is Nimrod, who's the founder of Babylon. And so it's all tied to empire. and I mean, it's all tied together in pretty profound ways. So that's a little bit of what's going on. If you have more questions, again, I'm happy to sit and chat about it. But what I want to say about this is to remind you one of the things we're doing as we go through Deuteronomy is, is, is reminding ourselves or learning how to read the Old Testament with Jesus as our guide. Jesus, I mean, this is why passages like this become difficult because if you're a Jesus follower, you know that we are called to love our enemies. And when, they're in the, when, when, when Jesus is being betrayed and Peter swipes off an ear of, a, of the dreaded Romans, Jesus puts the ear back on. <laughs> and so you wrestle, how, how can, Jesus is telling me this, but then but this is happening in Deuteronomy, what do I do with this? And I just say, you wrestle with this with God. And remember that Jesus is the ultimate revelation of what God wants to say to us. And we follow Jesus. And what that means, if, if, the, if the thrust of what the author of Deuteronomy is saying is that we need to drive the snakes out, then where we stand as Christians, we have learned that we will drive the snakes out the way Jesus drove the snake out, right? And so there's a flood of wrath that gets poured out on Jesus on the cross, right? What does Jesus do? He takes it. <laughs> he steps in. And so we follow Jesus, And even in the New Testament where Paul will use language, and he'll use language of Canaanite conquest, but he says our battle is against the powers and principalities, not other human beings. Our battle is against our own sinful flesh. That's what we're in battle, not against other human beings. And so there are parts of church history where these verses have been used and justified for like genocide. We repent of that. Where we stand as Christians, we know that's not, that's not at all what Jesus has taught us. And we try to understand what, are, what, are the, what is the author of Deuteronomy, what is, what, what is he communicating to us? So I don't know if that's helpful or not. It's kind of heavy, but I, I, wanted to, I didn't want to dodge it. We can have hard conversations. And I was thinking, you might be saying, well, I want to know more. I'll just tell you, sometimes you don't get what you want, right? So we'll keep reading because Moses doesn't get what he wants. Some of me just wanted to read this so that as, as Americans who are trained and formed to think that I should get what I want when I want it, especially when I've put in the time. Uh, as we're going to get to know Moses through this journey, Moses has spent 40 years putting in the time, folks. 
I mean, he hasn't been perfect, but he has led, he has shepherded these difficult, stubborn people through the wilderness, and now they are on the edge of the promised land. Verse 23, chapter 3, at that time I pleaded with the Lord, and I said, O sovereign Lord, you have only begun to show your greatness and the strength of your hand to me, your servant. Is there any God in heaven or on earth who can perform such great and mighty deeds as you do? Please let me cross the Jordan to see the wonderful land on the other side, the beautiful hill country and the Lebanon mountains. But the Lord was angry with me because of you. I mean, this is, it's not, it's not Moses' best look. Let's be honest. It's a very private prayer that Moses has made public. The Lord was angry with me because of you, and he would not listen to me. That's enough, he declared. Speak of it no more. And I'm still, and maybe we'll journey through and kind of maybe land at a place, but I'm just still trying to wrap my head around what God is doing here. But this is what God says. All right, Moses, you led him through the wilderness. Now go up to Pisgah Peak and look over the land in every direction. Take a good look but you don't get to go in and you don't get to cross the Jordan River. No, instead, you're going to commission Joshua and encourage and strengthen him. Wait a minute. You, I've got to encourage Joshua to do what I want to do? Yeah, Moses, that's what you've got to do because Joshua is going to lead the people across. But I want to lead the people. No. No, Joshua will lead the people across and he will give them all the land you now see before you as their possession. I mean, Moses doesn't get what he wants when he wants it. Now, one of the things I love is you keep reading through the biblical story, trying again to keep the whole story. Moses does end up in the promised land of the transfiguration, which is one of my favorite stories with Jesus and Elijah. But he doesn't get to do this here when he wants to. He just gets to go up a mountain and see. So we're just going to hold on to that. But that's some of the backdrop. I mean, that's where Moses is. He's at the end of his life. He's been told he can't do what he wants to do, but, that's, but then we're going to see what follows. Which is the obedience and humility and faithfulness of Moses. So just pay attention to that. And then finally, we're kind of wrapping up our section here in chapter 4, verses 32 to 40. This kind of ends where we'll be. We're almost done. I want you to hear these verses. I love these verses. There's a lot of good verses in these chapters. Moses says this, Now search all of history from the time God created people on the earth until now, and search from one end of the heavens to the other. And here are these questions. I mean, he's talking about the exodus. You and I can think about the cross. But here are these questions. Has, anyone, has anything as great as this ever been seen or heard before? As great or as, I mean, as great as the cross of Christ. Has any, has any nation, any people, any community ever heard the voice of God speaking to them from fire as you did and survived? God is talking to you, revealing himself to you. Has any other God dared to take a nation for himself out of another nation by means of trials and miracles and wonders and signs and more, a strong hand, a powerful arm, and terrifying acts? Yet that is what the Lord your God did for you in Egypt right before your eyes. Moses says. He said he showed you these things so you would know that the Lord is God. And there's no other God. He alone is God. Yahweh is God. He let you hear his voice from heaven so he could instruct you. He let you see his great fire here on earth so he could speak to you from it. Because he loved your ancestors, he chose to bless their descendants. And he personally brought you out of Egypt with a great display of power. He drove out nations far greater than you so he could bring you in and give you their land as your special possession as it is today. So remember this and keep it firmly in mind. The Lord is God both in heaven and on earth and there is no other. If you obey all the decrees and commands I am giving you today, all will be well with you and your children. 
I am giving you these instructions so you will enjoy, and listen to this, this is, this is Eden language, so you will enjoy a long life in the land the Lord your God is giving you for all time, right? Because that's what we're tracking. Who is the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the snake? How do we get back into Eden after we've been cast out because of our foolishness, our stubbornness, our sin? Moses is asking these questions and, and ask, pay attention. Don't be in a hurry. Pause. Rethink the story. Is there anyone like our God? Have you heard of anyone like this God? And one of the things I'm doing, I'm, I'm actually also listening to, um, which sometimes I'm like, how do I have time to do all this? But I'm also listening to a, a seminary class uh, by Dr. Daniel Block on Deuteronomy. And as he was going through this passage, he kind of held it up next to a, a, an ancient Sumerian prayer that was prayed regularly. Um, and we have copies of it. I think in, I just want to say this because it's cool, the library to Ashurbanipal in Assyria. That's awesome. But here's a prayer that was commonly prayed, an ancient Sumerian prayer. And I, I, the contrast, this is, again, part of what Moses is reacting to, to the surrounding nations. And Israel is being called to be a light amongst the nations. It's, a, it's actually this whole page is the prayer. I'm just going to, for the sake of time, just read the first like six lines and then I'll give you the kind of the summary. But it begins, may the wrath of the heart of my God be pacified. May the God who is unknown to me be pacified. May the goddess who is unknown to me be pacified. May, may the known and unknown God, may the known and unknown goddess be pacified. The sin which I have committed, I know not. The misdeed which I have committed, I know not. That's kind of the thread of this. You read on and on and on. You get to the end, and, and you're, you're sure of three things that this prayer is praying. This prayer knows that the gods are angry with him, that his sin has caused that anger, and that he must do something about sin to placate the gods' wrath. But he's ignorant of three things. He doesn't know which god is angry. To the unknown god or goddess, I don't know! <laughs> I can tell something's going on, but I don't know who it is. I don't know who I'm praying to. And he doesn't even know the crime that provoked the divine fury. I don't even know what I did. I did something. And he doesn't know what to do to kind of placate the wrath of the guy. He's going to cry out for mercy, and he doesn't know what to do. And now, now hold that in mind and contrast that to what Moses is saying God has done for Israel. God has revealed himself by name. They would have said Yahweh. But now we know, we can say, Jesus, <laughs> hallelujah, right, hallelujah. God has revealed, he's made himself known. God has gone to great lakes while you and I are lost and distracted and in a hurry. God has gone, he has revealed himself to us. Who does that? Who leaves the 99 to go looking for the one? Jesus does, the good shepherd. And this is what we'll lean into more and more in the coming weeks God has also declared the boundaries of acceptable and unacceptable conduct. God is going to help you understand what is sinful and what is righteous. He's going to do that. It's a gift. That's why, that's why the psalmist will sing of the glory of the law. And we'll talk about the law and why it was a gift and why it was good and why it was weak, but we'll talk more about that. And Israel's God has provided a way of forgiveness that actually solves the human problem of sin. Another amen and hallelujah. So you and I now can name what we've done wrong. We can take it to the cross of Christ and we can be set free. We don't have to live in shame and guilt. 
we can confess our sins and receive. And that's what we're going to experience, hopefully, expe- hopefully experience in communion in just a few minutes. Well, Moses is celebrating what God has revealed. And I was just thinking as Christians, we can celebrate even more because we know the story of the Exodus, but we also know the story of the cross. And we, we've, we, because Jesus is the ultimate revelation, we've seen more than Moses had at his time than the people of Israel had at their time. And I was just reflecting on what do we learn as Jesus enters into humanity? What, what makes him even more amazing, right? And I think there is just this huge piece that Jesus enters into our pain, into our suffering, into our weakness, and truly identifies with us. So I told you I'd start with Jay. I was going to end with Kami. Kami and I were driving last week. We went to breakfast on a little mini breakfast date. And, and we were just kind of catching up in the car. It was just a mundane drive in the car, and Kami's just sharing a sermon that she had been listening to about Joseph, right? It's Christmas time, Mary and Joseph. And, and I've been sharing with you that my dad died when I was 11, and I just reached a birthday. I just outlived my dad. I just reached a birthday my dad never reached. I don't know. Some of you may not know, but Kami's dad actually died when she was six. So it's kind of a shared story that we have. And she's listening to this sermon, and, and the, the pastor's talking about Joseph, and you know, Joseph isn't mentioned in the adult life of Jesus, and so it's, I think, probably rightly assumed that Joseph died before Jesus began his adult ministry. And so the pastor was just, pa- I mean, it's just a point you don't even have to make, but he just paused and he just said, you know, I wonder, it's quite possible if Jesus' first experience of human sorrow at that level was the death of Joseph, the death of his father. So Kami's sharing this to me, and I'm driving, I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but her voice like cracks and changes. And I'm like, uh, I look over, right, and her eyes are filled with water. One, I think one tear went down her cheek. But, but they were just, they were, they were, they were tears of joy. Because, because for her, it was a, a deep awareness that Jesus meets her. He understands what she's gone through in the loss of her dad. I mean, Jesus does that for you. He understands. Have you lost a loved one? Jesus understands that. Have you been betrayed? Jesus understands that. Have you endured physical suffering? Jesus understands that. There's really nothing. I mean, it's part of the, the early church fathers celebrate. There's, because Jesus is fully human, he can identify with you and me in whatever we're going through. And that's when I'm with, with Moses. I'm like, what God is like that? Who leaves the comfort of heaven and enters into the the, the wreckage of earth other than a God of love who is willing to give his own life on the cross so that you and I might have life, amen? So that's what we're going to celebrate. So I'm going to pray. I'll set up communion in just a minute, but I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite you to bow your heads and pray with me, kind of prepare our hearts for communion. Heavenly Father, Yahweh, Jesus, we don't have to wonder who we're talking to because you have gone out of your way to reveal yourself to us. <laughs> and, I mean, this is what, we'll get into this a little bit as we talk about the new covenant and what Jesus does with the Mosaic law, but, but we don't even have to memorize 600 laws and figure out what exactly is sin or not sin because we've been given the very personal presence of God, the Holy Spirit. We've been given our own pillar of fire that burns in our soul. And so, Holy Spirit, as we prepare for communion, 
We want to walk in this tension of the seriousness, the gravity of the moment as we confess our sins, but also the joy of the moment that we have forgiveness in your name. And so, Spirit of God, we're going to ask you to convict us of our sin. Actually, I'm just going to pause for a second, just be quiet for about 20 seconds and just, just try to pay attention. Don't think about the weather or what you're going to do in 10 minutes. Just listen to the conviction of the Spirit of God. Spirit of God, so we acknowledge that you speak to us. There are things that we can confess, things that we know that we've done that are just wrong, <laughs> evil within us. There's snake within us that we need you to drive out. And then, Jesus, we are going to celebrate with great joy uh, that you have provided a way, that there is life in you, that we are not left to our own demise, but that you come for us to save us. You meet us right where we are. So, Jesus, prepare our hearts, hear our confession, and meet us in the midst of our own suffering. Comfort us so that we can know healing and life and hope. It's in your name that we pray.